0: Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. I am so glad to be in, at least for today, I understand, sunny Southern California. Um, hey, Ryan, you did. A, let me just tell you, you did a great job, okay? Nearly 25 years in pastoral ministry. When it comes time to actually get into the message, I know what to do, but I always bumble through all the, well, do we kneel here, do we stand here? And oh, did I forget to introduce that person? So you did a great job, I appreciate that. Um, I always love to come out here and see old friends and make new friends, and today I'm sure it will be no exception. I, I was amused a little bit this morning. Uh, this donut fall in love, that's cute. Are there going to be donuts there? I'm just curious, because it's a social, right? I hear some yes, right? And so there's the donut, there's that gracious, that lovely couple that came up and so graciously said, hey, come over anytime for free food. Yeah, and then you had the Chub Club. You know, if you do the math, <laughs> I'll let you guys work that one out. And uh, hey, I'm for donuts as much as the next guy. So uh, not trying to come down on anybody. I just thought it was amusing. Um, this morning, our study, well, before I tell you this morning's study, I'll just, let me tell you about this afternoon's study. This afternoon is going to be more of a Bible study. I recently did the morning devotional uh, presentations for GYSC. if some of you aren't familiar, that's called Generation of Youth for Christ, and they meet every year about, you know, Christmas time, holiday time, and one of the presentations, I, I, I dropped an idea from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and I remember talking to the leaders afterwards, there really wasn't time to get in and expound on it, because it was just a piece of the message, and I told one of the leaders afterwards, It was a solid point, but if anybody went to 2 Corinthians 3 to find it for themselves, they'd never get it out of there. Most people wouldn't, because it's a very kind of confusing, but one of the most awesome passages in Scripture. So we're going to look at that this afternoon for those who are interested. Our topic this afternoon is two covenants. Our topic this morning is two altars. They are related. And before I go further, I want to pray and ask God to bless our time in his word. So I'm going to invite you to bow your heads while I do that. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for the Sabbath day and the opportunity and privilege we have to come into your presence, to experience this worship together, the fellowship, um, to connect with people that that will help to keep us accountable in our faith. And I pray, Lord, this morning, that the spirit of truth that you promised would be present to give us understanding in your truth, not just theoretically, Lord, but a true heart religion. We ask and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. But now, I have to tell you this, this. uh was just a few days ago. I got a call from a pastor friend of mine who wanted to let me know that there was a, a couple in his church that, that I know that just decided that they no longer want to be Adventist. I wish I could say this the first or the only such call I've ever received. The reality is I've had many such calls, and... Uh, Typically when this happens, it's because the what we might call the rules of Adventism get to be too much. The pressure gets to be too much. There's too much to live up to. Uh, mm. At least that's how the story goes. And, and people do the prodigal son and bail out. You're probably familiar with that, that in the book Christ Ob- Object Lessons, it tells us that the reason the prodigal left home is because he was weary of the restraint of his father's house. The fact is that it, 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 the rules of it, what's fascinating about the prodigal son is, at the end of the whole thing, he realizes the rules weren't as bad as he thought they were. And we'll, we may get into that a little bit. But typically when people reach this breaking point, that's where they go, down that route of the prodigal son. And I hope and pray that they, they finish their story like the prodigal did. And they come back. Maybe you have been there, or maybe you are contemplating it, Maybe maybe the 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 the, uh, the pressure you have felt the pressure to perform in your Christian experience, and you've contemplated: Do I is, is this really what Christianity is about? Is this what God wants me to do? Now, some people don't leave the the just the Adventist Church. They, some people leave the faith altogether. Now, personally, I've always believed in the high standards we hold as Seventh-day Adventists, Incidentally, I've told people, if you're going to play church, and I'm not wanting to intimate that this is what this particular couple was doing, but I've told people, if you want to play church, don't choose the Adventist church. Because the Adventist church does tend to be stricter, for lack of a better expression. One of the reasons for that is because we do try to live according to Scripture. Now, I know that sounds like I'm thumbing my nose at somebody. I'm really not. Uh, let me take one of the most controversial doctrines in our church, Christian dress, ornamentation, jewelry. If I bring that up, oh, that's it. You can bring that up anywhere and there's a firestorm and we feel like, oh, Adventists we're so particular. What many people don't understand is this was a consistent teaching of Protestantism in the past. Every Protestant church taught what we ta- uh, teach about that subject and others. Why don't they anymore? well, because it was unpopular. And so there was compromise. And I praise God that the Seventh Day Adventist Church has attempted to say, hey, if we see it in the Bible, we want to follow it. And so there's a lot of churches that don't do that. And people say, hey, I'll just find a church that fits whatever. So if you're going to play church, don't do it in the Adventist Church. You might reach that breaking point. But I thought to myself, I've always believed in the high standards of the church, and I've never come to that breaking point. I've consistently fallen short of them. I'll be honest with you right now. But by God's grace, I do my best. Why didn't I become overwhelmed and discouraged? Well, I suppose in in one sense, I could think, you remember the words of Peter in John chapter 6? Jesus said, do you guys want to leave also? And Peter said, Lord, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. But I believe the reason, at least for me, to a great degree has to do with something I learned very early on in my experience, and that's something I want to share with you this morning. I want to start by going to the book of Genesis. We're going to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21. Now, right after the fall of Adam and Eve, Genesis 3 and verse 21... The Bible says, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord made, what? Tunics of skin and clothed them. Now, they were caught in their sin, as it were. They needed redemption. Let me ask you this. First of all, there's several questions here. Where'd the tunics of skin come from? Uh, You know, there wasn't a little corner shop in Eden. It was like, hey, I think they got... Leather garments there. there wasn't Adam and Eve didn't go out and hunt down animals. There had to be an animal that they got the skins from. I personally believe it was a lamb, and I base that on scripture. Revelation thirteen eight calls Jesus Christ the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. We know that an animal died. It was a sacrificial animal, and the skins of that animal was used to cover their nakedness. Again, Adam and Eve were not, they didn't go out hunting the animal. Adam and Eve did not suggest the idea to God. Where did the idea come from? God himself provided a lamb. God himself was, and don't miss this, from the very beginning, God was the initiator in salvation. He wasn't waiting for man to come to him and get all repentant and say, okay, no, we really messed up and we, No. We didn't mess up. The man made me do it. The woman made me do it. The serpent made me do it. They weren't repentant at all. And God took the initiative. And God taking, that that taking of the initiative by God, incidentally, when God gave the lamb, what did the lamb represent? Who gave Christ? Did Adam and Eve give Christ or did God give Christ? So from the very beginning from the very foundation when we talk about it's ironically I'm going to talk a lot about the sanctuary today and I don't think we're ever going to look at the sanctuary we will look at some of the services. But from the very beginning God was the initiator and that was demonstrated in those sacrifices. That very first sacrifice said this God said this is what I'm willing to do for you. Are you with me so far? So let's move on from there to Genesis 4. You come to the fourth chapter of Genesis. It tells us that Adam and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. Verse 3 says, In the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering but he did not respect Cain and his offering. Now, let me just pause there. So, we really don't have anything spelled out yet. We see skins, it doesn't spell out the sacrifice. Then all of a sudden here, the grown children of Adam and Eve are coming to offer sacrifices as if this was a regular part of their worship experience, because it was. So that first lamb in Genesis 3 was the foundation for every, af- every afterward sacrifice. Something else I want to point out before we dive further into this is at the very end of chapter 3, if you look at verse 24, the Bible says, So God drove out the man, and he placed what? Cherubim. You know that cherubim means more than one. If there are two angels, they're not cherubs any more than you have two deers. The cherubim, it's plural. There's at least two. He placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and what? A a flaming sword. We'll get to that in a minute. A flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So these cherubim were put there to guard. Did they share the sword? I'll hold it now. You hold it next time. We'll take turns. What you'll find if you study this is in the Hebrew, there's not a sword at all. It says a a, a flaming sword which turned every way. Literally in the Hebrew, it's a flaming of a sword or the glittering of a sword. And what Moses was trying to describe is The kind of, how would you describe if there was a polished sword that was whirling itself around, nobody was whirling it, it was whirling itself around and light was shining off of it. It's this flashing, Moses saw this flashing light between the two cherubim. You know what that light was? That light was what we call the Shekinah. It was the presence of God. Do a little study on this. You can read it in the Adventist Bible, commentary in other places. Ellen White does not comment on that specifically, but she does say this. Well, I'll get to it in a minute. So picture it. Where else do we see cherubim and the Shekinah on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant? Yes or no? And that's where the priest came on the Day of Atonement for sacrifice. So here at the Gate of Eden, Man was to approach God, and Ellen White tells us that this is the place at the gate of Eden where Adam and his sons offered sacrifice. Well, we know they came into the presence of God, and we know that God approved Cain's, or Abel's offering and not Cain's offering, right? Now, when we think of this verse in Genesis 3.24, God drove the man out. Oh, well, God was trying to keep them out. He's guarding the way to the tree of life. But I want you to think about this for a minute. Is the is the sanctuary sacrificial system intended to drive man away or draw man? God had, God's presence was there at the gate of Eden. He could not allow and immortalize sin in the garden, but he was guarding the way so that one day again man would have the right to the tree of life. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, the whole picture we have here is one of invitation. God's initiating. God's taking the first step. God's doing everything he can to save man. And and even before I got into that, some of you are like, yeah, he's got the gate. The angels are there with the sword. Swords, which we picture even though that's not what it says. And they're kind of like, yeah, you can't come in. We get the opposite picture. There's a reason for that. We're going to get into that. So Cain and Abel offer their sacrifices there in Eden. Now, what's fascinating is, that we're told in the book, Desire of Ages, that as soon as they began offering sacrifices, the devil began to study that, what that meant. I've got on the screen here for you. Desire of Ages page, um, this is from page 115. It says, with what kind of interest? Oh, with intense interest, Satan watched the sacrifices offered by Adam and his sons. In these ceremonies, he discerned a symbol of communion between Earth and heaven. What was that communion saying? "Come to me, I want to save you." Wasn't a communion the devil was happy with? He set himself to do what? Intercept this communion. He misrepresented God and misinterpreted the rites that pointed to the Savior. Men were led to fear God as one who delighted in their destruction. The sacrifices, notice, the sacrifices that should have revealed his love, what God was willing to do for them, were offered only to appease his wrath. The sacrifices that were supposed to show what God would do to save humanity were to become what man needed to do to save himself. The very sacrifices. And, and, and so I don't lose you here. We're like, oh, that's interesting. Way back then, those sacrifices. What's today's equivalent to them bringing sacrifices to the gate of Eden? What's the modern equivalent of bringing sacrifices to the temple? It's us sitting here this morning. It's every act of worship. That was worship for them. So they're like, oh, that's far removed. We don't offer animals. like, oh, hold on a minute. We should have a lamb with us every time we come to worship. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And so I want you to understand that, because we're going to build on that. There are, are, what what we're going to see is there ultimately, with Cain and Abel, you've got two worshipers coming before God, offering sacrifices. Outwardly, they're looking very similar, even though it's not identical, but inwardly, very different philosophies. And we're told, and I'll show you this in a minute, that those two worshipers represent the two classes of people that will exist to the end of time. You come to the end of time, you got those who worship Jesus and those who worship the beast. There's just two classes. And you say, I never worship the beast. I know the right day of worship and everything else. So oh, hold on a minute. It depends on what motivates your worship. And this is what we're seeing here with what the devil was trying to do with the sacrificial system. So Cain Brings an offering, Abel brings an offering, they both have altars, they're both worshiping, they're both worshiping God, Cain didn't come to worship Baal. But one's accepted and one's not. I was debating on doing this, but I, I, we'll do it anyway. Some, some, some people say, well that's, that's, it's obvious why Cain wasn't accepted, because he didn't bring a lamb. And I like to ask people, well, what if he would have brought a lamb? Would his offering have been accepted? Go with with me to the book of Isaiah for a minute. Isaiah chapter 1. Oh, mercy. We'll pick up in verse verse 10. This is a great, great chapter. I'll have to, you can go back and check me on this, but I have to let you know that In verse 1, it says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He's not talking to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's talking to his own people. It's a pretty bad day when God's calling you Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, no, notice this is the Lord speaking. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Now, what's the tendency? I'm reading this and I'm thinking, if God's asking me, here I am, I'm one of the worshipers in Israel, I'm coming and bringing sacrifice, and God says, what's the multitude of the sacrifice? Who asked you for this? What are you going to (laughs) say? like, the Lord, you did. I'm doing this because you asked for it, right? I mean, it wasn't them who instituted the sanctuary service. So notice what he goes on to say. There's a key in him saying, trampling the courts. That's the part that he didn't ask for. Verse 13, bring no more futile sacrifices, incense is an abomination to me, the new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates they are a trouble to me i'm weary of bearing them when you spread out your hands i will hide my eyes from you even though you make many prayers i will not hear your hands are full of what blood in the context what kind of blood sacrificial blood right they're bringing the sacrifices and, and, and if you, you get a little insight, and I don't have a time to, to, to go into this as much as I'd like to, but verse 16 says, the Lord says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil from your, of your doings before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, etc.' What God's saying here is there's a purpose to your spirituality. There's a purpose to your Christianity, and that is that you become more like Christ. But what the people were doing is, they were using the sacrificial system as a payoff. Like a penance. Oh, look, I can't keep from doing this thing, so I'm going to sin and sacrifice and sin and sacrifice and sin and sacrifice. And their hands are full of sacrificial blood, and God says, you're not getting it. You're still doing the same things. You're living the same way. So again, the question, if Cain had brought a lamb, would it have been accepted? It all depends it all depends on his attitude now in the book patriarchs and prophets we get a little insight into Cain's attitude I'm gonna share that with you it's up on the screen and there's just a few things I want to pull out here Cain's gift expressed what no penitence for sin no sorrow for sin no repentant he didn't have a repentant attitude he chose the course of self-dependence he would come in his own merits he would not bring the lamb and mingle its blood with his offering but he would present his fruits the products of his labor he presented his offering as a what favor done to god through which he expected to secure the divine approval you know what we call that appeasement right we just read that that lucifer when he studied When Satan studied those sacrifices, he said, I don't like where this is going. It's teaching them what God is gonna do for them, so I'm gonna flip the script. And I'm gonna give them the idea, oh no, 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 this isn't what God's doing for you, this is what you have to do for God, to be accepted by him. Mm -hmm. And so, for Cain, his giving sacrifices, his worship, his Christian experience, if you will, was for the purpose of doing a favor to God. I know it sounds crazy, but it's not gonna sound as crazy in a minute. Through which he expected to secure the divine approval. He'd get God's approval, God's love, God's acceptance. It says Cain obeyed in building an altar, obeyed in bringing a sacrifice, but he rendered only a what? Partial obedience. The essential part, I mean, it. Partial obedience is bad enough, but when the one part you didn't do is the most important part. The essential part. What is the essential part? The recognition of the need of a Redeemer was left out. So, Satan was successful. As we read, the sacrifices that should have revealed his love were offered only to appease his wrath. We see this in The sacrifice of Cain now think about this with me for just a minute what was the essential part that Cain didn't have he didn't see a personal need for it now gonna ask it and maybe this will sound like a funny question but if you don't sense any need of worshiping God then who's your worship for in other words if it's not for you because you have a need I know we're not supposed to think this way because that sounds almost selfish, but it's the reverse. God instituted worship because we need a Savior. Every element of worship, and let me just be more practical, of our Christian faith. Let me bring a real practical example. Returning tithe. This is going to sound funny to you, but God is not poor. God is, doesn't need your money He didn't ask you to return tithe because there's potholes in the streets of gold. He asked you to return tithe because you need it. Everything that's offered up on the proverbial altar is what we need. We talk about Christian dress. It's not because it's something God needs. We need it. Every practical element, even the ones that seem not as important, are things God knows we need. And so we come to worship God because we realize that I can't live the kind of life that God has called me to live on my own. I've got to have a divine power in my life. I've got to have transformation in my life. But if I don't believe any of that, if I don't think I need it, if I'm living just fine, why am I still coming to church? Ah, because God needs it. God needs it. I'm going to come and worship as a favor to God. And what kind of obedience did Cain render? A partial obedience. Oh, there's so much I could say here. This is, by the way, this is, this is textbook legalism. Legalism, the word legalism, legal, law, it's salvation by law or salvation by what I'm going to do. Does that make doing wrong? Let me, let me show you a practical example. This, this part, you know, when we see partial obedience, partial obedience is, you know, if, if we talk about full obedience, what's another word? Full is not a good word. I don't want to use strict. That just gives it all away. But um, um, particular obedience. If I use that word and I say, you know, who, is, who obeyed God most particularly? What would your answer be? Maybe I'm preaching to the choir here, but I'll tell you, most Adventist crowds will say, oh, the Pharisees did. They were the particular ones. And they were. But let's be clear. What they weren't particular in obedience to God. They were particular in their own notions. Look at it in Matthew 23 with me. Matthew 23. Jesus' words to the Pharisees. This is fascinating. Matthew 23 and verse 23. Jesus says here, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. These were very small herbs. Some people didn't tithe them because it was just a tenth of next to nothingness. and It's like it just doesn't count. But they were particular in their tithing of it. Now notice, Jesus says, but you have neglected the The weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. Notice the last part. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Simple question for you. Did Jesus say the Pharisees were doing too much or not enough? He says, look, these you ought to have done, but you left some things out that you also. He didn't say these you should have done instead of those. And you'll find that the, the reality is we say, Oh, the, 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 particular obedience, that's always the legalists in the church. No, in fact, it's never the legalists in the church. You know why? Because when your motivation is to appease God's wrath and it's not out of love for God, you're going to become the proverbial D student in life, in your spiritual life. You know what I mean by that? So this is the, this is the guy or the girl in high school. that's like, Oh, I hate this. How do I get out of here and get a passing grade? I'm talking to college students, so I should have said a C student. Some of you heard my story that my first, my first year in college, my first semester, no, the whole year, I met my wife. I can't blame my wife, but I have, I was distracted, you understand. And uh, in, in high school, in fact, in high school, I was one of those procrastinators. I'd wait until the night before an essay was due in English class, and I'd get a B on it. I could have gotten an A on it, but I don't care. B's fine, my mom and dad are okay with it. I thought that's how it was gonna roll in college. You put off a week's worth of reading and you're done. Skip classes, bad habits I pick. Long story short, I mean, that proverbial D student, hey look, tell me what I need to get by. Anyway, I learned that a D, 1.0 average, does not get you by and actually means you have to take the whole year over and they don't reimburse you. If you haven't learned that yet, your moms and dads will appreciate, potentially, if you take that little lesson home today. But, but here, you know, the problem is, why is, that, why is the D student the D student? Because that person finds no pleasure in anything that's going on in that scene, in school, whatever. They just want to get out. And the church is full of D students. They're the people that sneak in late and leave early. Now, I'm not talking about, I'm not going to judge you when you, you know, some people, you're always the one that trickles in. That's okay. But there are some people. I mean, Pastor Cameron and I have talked about it, both, you're just comparing pastor, other pastors that we work with, that you'll be in a church, and you've got somebody who comes in. You know, the, 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 the sermon starts at 1130. Okay, you got preliminaries, and then you get the sermon, and you're usually finishing up about 12.15 or so, and somebody comes in about 12.05 every week. And, and listen, maybe that's you, and, and I'll make an excuse, perhaps you are very time challenged. But for most people who do that, the reality is they're that D student, they find no they find no pleasure in their religious experience, but they've got to check that box If they're gonna make it into the kingdom, it's an appeasement Right in the Christian church. So here we have Cain and Abel and that 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 appeasement mentality I mean that became the foundation of all heathen worship that twisted picture is where heathen worship is but through God's people mingling with the idolaters it became It became the the the, the Going worship when Jesus showed up among his own people. And as I said, it's, it's still in the church today. And it comes from not sensing a need for a redeemer. I don't need the redeemer. I don't need the, the different um, standards of the Christian faith. I don't need it. I'm doing fine. So God must need it. So I'll give him what he needs When I was baptized, I told the pastor of the church, I did not believe in a lot of the things the Adventist church taught. I said, I don't agree with what you guys teach about jewelry or caffeine, coffee drinking, and you know, this Ellen White, I don't believe in any of that stuff. And I I was bargaining, I I realized as I look back, I was bargaining with the pastor. I'm like, no, I don't like that. Um, Here's what I'll I'll give you. (laughs) It's like I was bargaining over a car or something. I'll give you ten five for that car I'm not gonna give you any more than that this is what I'll give you I'm not gonna go with the Ellen white thing but I'll give you this like he was gonna come back and we're gonna come to some agreement I'm gonna determine my own what I think is important in 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 the faith that's not a trust in God that's not a need for God if I felt a need for God I would say okay God you know best yes or no anyway I digress So you have this right there in in Cain and Abel's offering. Obviously, the the contrast to that, that is Abel. And the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11 that by faith Abel offered a more excellent sacrifice unto God than Cain did. He had faith in God, he had faith in the words of God, he had faith in the Redeemer, the faith that Cain didn't have. He saw his own need. And thus he saw everything that God asked him to do was something he desperately needed. If God says I need to return tithe, I need it. It's going to help me be less stingy. It's going to help me be, think more thoughtful of others. It's going to help me not be so tied to money in this world. So I can't think outside of having X amount of dollars income. I know people in the church, it'd be a lot more active in the church, but it's like, no, nah, I gotta, I gotta maintain the standard of living. I'm not knocking a standard of living, but when your standard of living is like, yeah, I just can't keep up with going to church. There's a problem. Again, it's textbook legalism. You say, how can that be legalism? Legalism is you're at church all the time. Oh, no, you're not. Somebody might be in their form of legalism. It all depends on the deal you made with God. (laughs) What's that bare minimum? Is it a C? Is it a D? What's a great point? I'll do that much. That's an indicator to our own hearts that we're not finding joy in obedience. Notice this statement from... um, Christ's Object Lessons, this is not it, although that's a great statement. Legalism is not about the obedience itself, but the motive behind it. Notice here's the statement. The man who attempts to keep the commandments of God from a sense of obligation merely because he is required to do so will never enter the what? The joy of obedience. Then she goes on to say he does not obey if obedience to God isn't, doesn't include love for God and the things you're doing for God, it's not true obedience. Now listen, I've got to be clear here. I'm not talking about the battle of the flesh and the spirit where sometimes part of you wants to go on outreach and the other wants to just take a nap. Okay, and there's this struggle. with the, I'm not talking about that. Talking more specifically about really just trying to put on airs that I'm a, I'm a Christian but I, I really don't find I don't like those. You know, people do it today. They say, what's the saying now? I'm spiritual, not religious. I don't, I don't, I'm not like those, those, I'm not one of those Christians that likes to sit around and talk about the Bible. You know, people say this is kind of like, this is a, like I'm a better Christian. I don't get into all that. But the really saying is I really don't like Christianity that much. This is what it's talking about here. He does not obey this person. So when we talk about the Pharisees, they obeyed, didn't they? No. Pharisees did not obey. When the requirements of God are counted a burden because they cut across human inclination, we may know that the life is not a Christian life. True obedience is the outworking of a principle within. When I came to Christ, I had no desire for spiritual things. That's what the Bible says, spiritual things are foolishness to the natural man. God had to work a divine miracle in my heart. Incidentally, after that conversation I had with the pastor, who incidentally did agree to my terms and baptized me into Jesus, he said. Whatever that's supposed to be, because I didn't believe in the teachings of Jesus. But after that point, the Lord converted my heart. And when he converted my heart, I saw things differently. He put a love in my heart for spiritual things that was not there naturally. That's what conversion is about. That's, that's what she's saying here, true obedience is the outworking of a principle within. This is the challenge when it does come to obedience. And I talk about these couples who leave the church and oh, they feel so oppressed. The reality is, you can't, as much as you might even see that yeah, I need to live a different kind of way. But you can't jump that first step. And that first step is conversion, that first step is the surrender so Christ can change your heart and put that principle within. It goes on to say it springs, true obedience, it springs from the love of righteousness, the love of the law of God. We don't have that naturally. We're not born into this world with that. That only comes through conversion, which is why Jesus could tell a man who was a teacher in the church his whole life, if you're going to enter into my kingdom, you've got to be born again. It continues, the essence of all righteousness is what? loyalty to our redeemer this will lead us to do right because it is right because right doing is pleasing to god and it becomes your desire not to appease god but to please god too many people working on 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 appeasing god instead of pleasing god but it comes from that need for transformation i want to consider this concept of appeasement for a minute you know, I'm I'm doing something for God to gain his favor. I'm gonna come to church, I'm gonna stop swearing, I'm gonna start eating this way, whatever. What is it that you or I can give to God as an appeasement? While you're thinking about that, I want you to go with me to first chronicles twenty-nine. First Chronicles not 1 Corinthians, got myself to the wrong place. 1 Chronicles 29, and we're going to look at verse 14. Now, this was at the ded- dedication of the materials for the building of the temple. King David was not permitted to build the temple, but he, was ga- he did gather the materials together, and they did it by free will offering. And all the people gave, and they had this abundance of material to, to build Solomon's temple. And at the dedication, notice what David says here. First Chronicles 29, 14. He says, we'll start in verse 13. Now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things, what? Come from you and of your own we have given you. What can I give to God as an appeasement that God doesn't already own? that I'm not already obligated to. In other words, what can I do? And God says, hey, that's good. You've earned this. You've earned that. Ellen White uses the term creature merit. In fact, I'm going to show you in a minute. Like, this, this verse right here, I had read it, but it, I'm going to share a statement from the book Faith and Works, where I first read it, and it, it, that set the tone for me. I, I, for my whole experience, when I realized, Everything belongs to God. Like, there's nothing I can do. How can I ever think my, any kind of my, I mean, my best obedience, like, what It's what am I obeying with? Where do I get my brain power? Where do I get my, how, how do I draw my breath? Where do I get everything I have from? From God. We won't go there, but uh, I'll reference you to 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Paul says something similar. He says, for what, who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? Like, where's the boasting about, no, God gave me all the powers to do anything for him. No, there's no winning God's favor. God is always taking the initiative. We're going to keep coming back to that. Notice this statement, a little longer statement from the book, Faith and Works, on this idea. It says, now, not a soul can give anything to God that is what? Not already his. She says, bear this in mind, all things come of thee and of thine own have we given thee. Qu- quotes what we just read there in scripture. And then she says, this must be kept before the people wherever we go. We've got got to constantly be reminded or remind ourselves that everything belongs to God. I can't, there's nothing I can do to earn God's favor, which is why God never asked us to do something to earn his favor. That's the heathen picture, the devil's twisted picture of worship. Says that we possess nothing. We can offer nothing in value, in work, in faith, which which we have not first received of God or would say from God today and upon which he can lay his hand at any time and say these are mine gifts and blessings and endowments I entrusted to you not to enrich yourself but for wise improvement and to benefit the world if I'm wealthy where would that come from Bible says in Deuteronomy God gives us power to get wealth. I mean there's nothing I have that didn't come from God and she's making the point and if God wants me to return on that he can ask at any time and then can Oh, well, then I can earn something from God. No, I'm just giving back to him what is his own. But, but that last part, it's, or it's, it's not a to enrich ourselves, but for wise improvement and to, to benefit the world. The wise improvement, the parable of talents, right? They were, they were increasing on their investment. Wise improvement, when I use the talents God gave me in a worldly way, what does that do for me in my life? It doesn't make it better, I'm gonna tell you right now. Like, if you want, if you just want a good quality life, even if you were to be lost, you'd be best to follow the principles in the Word of God. Just take the health principles alone. I believe there are gonna be people who are lost but live longer lives because they follow biblical health principles. You understand what I'm saying? Like, you can't outdo the Lord in his goodness, but these all come from God. Goes on to say, the creation belongs to God. The Lord could, by neglecting man, stop his breath at once. All that he is and all that he has pertains to God. The entire world is God's. Man's houses, his personal acquirements, whatever is valuable or brilliant is God's own endowment. It is all his gift to be returned back to God in in helping to cultivate the heart of man. That's our benefit. I mean, once again, <laughs> why, would, why does God ask us to return anything to him? We say, oh, the salvation of the world. Listen, don't, don't kid yourself. It's for your benefit. But God asked for it, like the tithe. Because he knows you need it. There is nothing God is doing or asking of you that he doesn't see you desperately need to be in his kingdom. And that's his goal. And see, we question that. And the devil loves us to question that. Oh, no, it's for his own selfish gain. The devil said God was selfish. He's not selfish. He's selfless. He demonstrated it by giving himself on the cross. And he says, everything I'm doing is for you. So we can ask ourselves, what's the appeal then of appeasement? Like, if, if God's doing everything for us, we ought to be happy about it. Why the appeal to appeasement? A good example is in Galatians. I mean, the situation in Galatia, if you read Galatians was, Paul was preaching the gospel of accepting Christ for salvation, but the false gospel was, no, you got to get circumcised. Grown man, no anesthesia. Think about that. Which one am I going with? Why would somebody choose circumcision? Because I'll check this box, and I'll be better in five to seven days, and from then on I'm in the kingdom. We have our own types of what whatever box it is that in my mind, if I as long as I, I go to church for 15 minutes every Sabbath, or whatever it happens to be, as long as I we get our little list and I'll check that off, then I can retain, then I can retain my selfishness. My sinful desires, and I don't have to surrender my will to Christ. Look at this statement. We've got have to go ahead here. From the book Great Controversy, it says, It is more palatable to human nature to do penance than to renounce sin. It is easier to mortify the flesh by sackcloth and nettles and galling chains than to crucify fleshly lusts. Heavy is the yoke which the carnal heart is willing to bear rather than to bow to the yoke of Christ. I'll tell you, you know, I, I, no, we don't like to be out of step with custom and culture and look like the odd person. What we sacrifice to be approved of the world. To bow to the yoke of Christ. No, we'll go through whatever kind of appeasement, and so it still has its appeal, and in addition, without a personal sense of need, the reality is a person feels that they ought to be able to choose how to live and what to do, and God ought to be okay with it. You notice that when Cain wasn't accepted by God, when his offering wasn't accepted, he wasn't sad and saying, Lord, what can I do? He was furious why isn't it this ought to be acceptable to god that's kind of how we do why doesn't the church accept the way that i want to (laughs) live because we follow the bible my friends we follow what god is saying and we know that what god is saying is for my best good and yours and so by faith we commit to those things he was furious ellen white says when we begin to so we begin to doubt these things like well i don't know if this is really what god says and what and time doesn't permit me to get into all of this, but I wanna show you, that's not what I wanted to see. This statement here, disguise it this is from a book, Steps to Christ, page 111. Disguise it as they may. The real cause of doubt and skepticism in most cases is the what? Love of sin. The teachings and restrictions of God's word are not welcome to the proud, sin-loving heart, and those who are unwilling to obey its requirements are ready to doubt its authority. <laughs> It's funny how that goes. I agree with everything until it says, oh, by the way, you need to change this. Hmm. I don't know if I think that's inspired. That part there of scripture, I'm not quite sure about that. All of a sudden, things become fuzzy. Friends, we've got to understand that, 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 that this, this whole experience, going back to that first sacrifice in Eden, God provided the lamb. God's providing salvation. Everything God is asking of us, yes, he knows there's self-sacrifice needed. And what does he do? He gives us power to do it. He changes our heart and our mind, but we have to make the choice. Everything God is asking of us is something he's doing so that we will be in eternity with him. And friends, I cannot even give you a good estimate of what it means to be in eternity. Nobody's going to get to heaven and say, oh, man, this is all we got? (laughs) Uh, Anything that we, it costs us here. It's not, what's it costing us? Costing us sin and death. The Lord wants to give us eternity. Obedience was the determining factor between Cain and Abel. And it's going to be the determining factor in the end. That determines whether I've surrendered. That's the, the yoke of Christ. It's talking about surrender to. I mean, when you surrender to Christ, that means when Christ says something, I say, okay. <laughs> If he says, do this, and I say, I'm not gonna do it, is that surrender? We love surrender because it's this passive word, surrender. (sighs) But surrender means choosing to follow Christ and sometimes to take a different path. We're told in uh, the book, Patriarchs and Prophets, Abel chose faith and obedience. Cain, unbelief and rebellion. Here, the whole matter rested and it will always rest right there. Cain and Abel represent what? Two classes that will exist in the world till the close of time. One class avails themselves of the appointed sacrifice for sin. The other venture to depend upon their own merits. True faith, which relies wholly upon Christ, will be manifested by obedience to all the requirements of God. Not because we feel like we can do it, but because we trust that God will do what he said. Because we love God, for taking the initiative to save our souls. And we believe that whatever he's asking me to obey is part of that process where he is reclaiming us. That at the gate of Eden, those cherubim, God inviting us, I'm guarding the way because I want you to come through this way home. From Adam's day to the present time, the great controversy has been concerning obedience to the law of God. That's the heart of the issue. And there's two classes. Which class are you going to be in? My prayer is that we would be in that class that are willing to surrender to the yoke of Christ. Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we've meditated on these things this morning, Lord, you know the hearts of each one here. There are things that we all struggle with, and there, there are, are times when we're, we, we can get overwhelmed. We forget that you are always the initiator. We're not on our own in salvation. We're not on our own in trying to, ha- trying to perform in some way to gain your approval. But Lord, you've shown your approval in giving your only begotten son. And in everything you ask of us, Lord, I pray you'd help us to see an invitation to your kingdom. And Lord, help us also to see that if you're asking us to change our course, then the course we're on, no matter how okay it seems to us, is going to be the means of destroying us. And in your great love, you want us home together with you. I pray you would lead us to that surrender, of our wills to Christ that would get us there. And I pray, Lord, one day soon we will be rejoicing in the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ in His presence in your kingdom. We ask and pray all these things in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse,